paper it says that Hugh Prather will give long answers to short questions from the audience. <laughs> if you would like to just uh, say a single word, that's all right. Now, last time we had a microphone that we hand around. We're not going to do that. That was a little cumbersome. So I, I'll try to summarize your question. But if you could make it brief, that would be helpful. And also, if you could remember that there are some people here who are in pain and who very much have come here for peace and for help. And so this, I don't think, is the time for us to engage in some sort of controversy or intellectual discussion. If you could look within your heart and see if you have a real question that you'd like to ask that pertains to something in your life, then this can often be very helpful. But if it's just a mere intellectual exercise, then this leaves the person in pain feeling cold and left out. Uh, I hope I haven't chilled you already. Probably. <laughs> so, uh, if you'd like to ask a question, or if you would like to just say a single word or two that you'd like for us to talk about for a moment, uh, we can do that. As I say, we do this maybe every three or four months. And, uh, yes? Self-forgiveness. A couple Sundays ago, we made this into an actual rule here at the Dispensable Church. It was no longer permissible to criticize yourself. So we have two thou shalt nots. One is thou shalt not be discouraged, and the other one is thou shalt not criticize yourself. These are things that anyone here in this room can stop doing now. It's not necessary. We all do the best we can, and so self-criticism is, is never justified. And the word forgive, as we've said here before, comes from a Greek word that means simply to let go. And so we let go of this sort of rigid personality that we've been carrying around with us. This, this tired old set of reactions, what Hazel Archer calls the bundle. We let go of that. And instead, we replace it with open-heartedness and open-mindedness. Maybe you could uh, close your eyes with me and let's just think about that for a moment. First of all, think about what are your tired old reactions to everything. Reacting in the same way year after year. This personality that must be defended. This way that you are if someone criticizes you, quickly come to its defense. And see that now, in your heart, you no longer wish to defend this puny ego. <coughs> Instead, you want to be open. Open to new strengths and new responses within you. Open to love and to kindness. Open to spontaneous happiness. So first of all, see what you have perhaps made of yourself, how rigid it is, and take an instant or two, a typical way that you know you respond in certain situations, and fantasize just for a moment 
being open-hearted and open-minded instead. So you're going to replace the ego with openness. For this is true forgiveness. Let's do that together for just a moment or two. Okay. So forgiveness is simply the statement that we make to our heart. I don't have time to defend how I have always been. And now criticisms can actually be an aid. Things that you hear or things that you think people are saying about you. That can actually be an aid because you say, ah, yes, that is the way I always respond. Do I really want to go on defending this? Clutching this to me, saying this is the way I am? Or would I like to be something without boundaries? And then just take it easy. Drop each little defense as you can. To see if you can allow a more gentle, fuller, kinder reaction to a particular situation. To a particular person. Do you always have the same reaction to this particular person? Do you always feel the same way when you see this particular person? Isn't it time to let that go? Why does that need to be defended? Happiness and forgiveness are one and the same. The key to happiness is to forgive yourself. To let your old self go. And to be open. Okay. I told you the answers are going to be long. (laughs) Yes. Fear of isolation. There's an interesting phenomenon that takes place as egos relate to egos. And that is that after we're around other people for a certain period of time, and this period of time varies with each of us, how long it is or how short it is determines whether or not we are classified as an introvert or an extrovert. But whether we're classified as an extrovert, there is still a limit on how long we are willing to be around other people. And what the ego experiences after a while is a disintegration of itself. It begins to feel scattered. And the desire becomes very strong to put our ego back together because now we don't know what we are any longer. We've been around these people for so long. And so we think that we must step back and we must remind ourselves of what we are. So the ego very much loves isolation. In fact, the ego is nothing but the love of isolation, the love of difference, the love of contrasting, the love of I am I and you are you and we're different. And as we said before, anything that the ego loves, it also fears. And so the ego shuttles between actually two forms of isolation. A loneliness among other people in which we are constantly judging what everyone is saying, what they're wearing, how long their nose is, or why do they dye their hair this particular color. There's just this constant chatter like some monkey, some angry monkey in a tree. 
<laughs> and this is just going on in our mind all the time while we're around other people. The effect of this is, of course, to separate us from them, to say I'm different and my differences are good and their differences are bad. So that is actually a form of isolation. But it requires a great deal of effort and this sense of a scattered self begins to seep into our, our soul. And so we then withdraw. But because that is a love, a love of the ego, we actually, ref we actually fear this withdrawal. We actually fear our very isolation. We equate it with death and destruction and annihilation. The fact is, it really doesn't matter whether we're alone with other people or alone by ourselves. The only thing that will give us true peace, and this is why we withdraw, is peace itself. It's a gentle mind and a sweet heart. It's a, it's a kind vision that looks upon everyone quite gently. This is what really brings rest. Now, having said that, it is very important to understand that the ego will say that it is more virtuous for you to, to be with other people than it is to be by yourself, or vice versa. It will make a virtue of one of those stances. And the fact is that it doesn't matter at all. Therefore, do whatever allows you to be most peaceful. Watch carefully your sense of enjoyment, your tolerance. And once it runs out and you're no longer enjoying the particular event, realize that there's nothing in this world you must do. That the only thing that is good for you is the peace of God. And so step back instantly from the activity. It's all right if people yell at you. This is very important. There's a lot of things we don't do because we're afraid someone's going to scream at us. And it doesn't matter. What does that affect? We don't go out of our way to make people scream at us. But if you see that you're in some situation and that something has happened so that you now cannot talk gently to that deep self of love within you, then go outside. Go for a walk. Go home. Do anything you need to. We've talked about how we will do anything we need to if we have diarrhea. <laughs> and someday when someone gives us a church carved in granite above the front door, we'll say, the peace of God is more important than diarrhea. <laughs> So at least do as much for yourself as you would for that condition. <laughs> if your peace is ebbing away, it is all right to act. It doesn't make any difference whether it seems peculiar or inappropriate or anything else. Bless the people. Be kind to them. Leave gently, but leave quickly and decisively. The thing that actually offends people is our indecision. When we turn down an invitation to go to a party or something like that, the thing that offends the caller is this sense of equivocation that they sense in our voice, this anxiety, this nebulous something that means I don't trust you. I can't tell you what's really on my heart. 
It is far better to be honest and loving at the same time. I really would like to get together with you, so-and-so. It's been so long since we've been together, but I just don't particularly want to go to this thing. Now, they may have a little fit, you see, but it's, it's clean and there's something honest and grounded about the whole thing. And it's the beginning of simplicity. Life can be that simple. To simply say yes and simply say no. You don't have to confine yourself to a single word. Yeah. What's the best way to help a friend who's going through a decision? It's very difficult for them. Well, this, of course, would depend on uh, how open the, the friend is to, uh, to turning to you for help. But there is actually never a reason to make a decision. Now, most people, of course, are not at the point where they can see that. But we already know in our heart what we're going to do. So we allow the answer. And this whole business of deciding things is actually a charade. If you'll watch very closely, it doesn't even take place the way it seems to. I think I've told you about my friend uh, Herb Weinstein, who uh, has a national ranking in the over 75 group, soundly beats me on the tennis court says, oh, to be 44 again. He passes me time and time again. <laughs> Herb is always changing his racket. Uh, he's found out that you can write to the factories of the various tennis rackets and, and you can get samples. And so he's always out there with about four or five trying them out. See. And I watch him go through this process that we all go through about making decisions. He'll narrow it down over a period of weeks to this one racket. He says, this will be the one. And then the next time he's out there on the court, it, that isn't the one. He always says, well, at the last minute I decide so-and-so. Or, and of course, that's what always happens. All of this pre-deciding work that we go through is literally discarded at the time that the decision is made. If you'll notice very close, if you look at this very closely, you just sort of throw it all out the window and then if there's something in you that says, oh, this is the thing I'll, I want to do. And then you just feel guilty because that's not the thing you decided you're going to do. So. <laughs> so what our friends need when they're trying to make a difficult decision is the same thing that we need, and that is simply our peace. So we try to make them comfortable. We do not try to help them make the decision because it is already made. And since you do not know what their decision is, for you to try to force them into a decision can end up making them feel quite bad if that's not the decision that's already made. We do not know what's best for another person. We don't even know what's best for ourselves. And so the thing to do is just to try in every way you can to make the person feel comfortable. Another thing that should be recognized is that many people love to talk about these things. They love to carry on and on about something that needs to be decided. We all know many, many people like that. In fact, we're all that way to some degree. It's all right to say that to yourself. So-and-so really, here's how you can tell if the person actually wants your advice, because they will say they want your advice. And that is, when you've just come to item number 24, suggestion number 24, and they've just rejected that just like that, then you understand that they're not that, that they, that's not really what they want from you. 
Notice this. Someone will say, gosh, I don't know what to do. What do you think I should do? And you'll say so-and-so, and they bat that down. And then they'll ask you again, and you suggest something else, and they bat that down. This is all very innocent. All that's going on is they're just simply saying, uh, I like worrying about this. And so let them worry about it in peace. Get together with them. (laughs) Furrow your brow and bend your head and worry with them, you see. Just have a great old time worrying with them. That's what they've come to you for, is to be their friend and to support them. And if they want to worry, support them in that. If they want advice as to how to make a decision, decisions can be made quite simply by simply pausing, becoming peaceful, becoming still, entering that quiet place in our heart. We all know it exists, but there is a place of calm knowing, a place of integrity, a place of honesty, a calm honesty within us. We all know this place exists. So we just retire into that center of quietness, no matter how agitated our body may be. It's all right to leave your body in a state of anxiety. Leave it. Let it be anxious. But you go to the quiet place in your heart. Even if to get there, you have to walk out of faith that it's there in the beginning. You just say, well, I know it's there, so I'm going to act as if it's there. So I'm just going to sit down and I'm going to let my mind sink below this madhouse. And you settle into the peace, into the quiet of your heart. This just takes a few seconds. Just become still. And then you ask yourself, what do I want to do about this now? And if the question is about what you're going to do tomorrow, then you can safely drop it. Tomorrow will take care of itself. If there's something you can do about it now, then just ask yourself in your peace, what would I like to do? And then... Notice your preference. Don't wait for some perfect sign or some complete uh, knowing. Simply notice the gentle leaning. As if you're a, a large cottonwood tree that's just sort of bending in the wind. You want to go with the wind like a giant bird instead of fight, fight the wind. You want to go with the wind. The wind blows from within you, this peaceful wind. So there is a leaning in a direction. Don't be afraid to look at it and follow it. If you have a sense of peace, if you have a sense of calmness or gentleness, or if you have a sense of love, it does not have to be absolute. If there's just a sense of love or peace about a particular action, that is all you need. You do not need rationalization. You do not need reasons. Above all, you do not need to see your way through. This is the favorite, possibly the favorite tactic of the ego to delay our progress. And that is we must first see our way through before we act. And since it's impossible to see our way through, we just stay in a state of conflict. So pause in peace. Tell your friend that. Follow your peaceful preference. And do it with assurance. Don't worry about mistakes. We have such a tremendous terror of mistakes. Notice that you learn so much more from mistakes than you do when everything turns out the way your ego wants it to. 
Let's say that together. I learned so much from mistakes. <laughs> I'm from mistakes. This side didn't say. This side doesn't think they learn anything. I learned so much from mistakes. All right. Don't be afraid of mistakes. It's better to go ahead and 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 do follow your peaceful preference in confidence. This not in arrogance, not in coldness, not knocking people over, but with assurance. You have to begin walking as if you are hearing the voice of God in order to eventually hear the voice of God. Take your peaceful preference. If it's if it ends up not being correct, then you just try again. That's all. You just do something else. And if that ends up being a mistake, you do something else until you've gotten past this particular hindrance. Okay. Inner conflict. Inner conflict. All conflict, of course, begins with what we think of as opposing wills within us. We actually believe that we have within us two wills. And so I can remember as a boy being told uh, before I started dating that when I started dating, that if the girl said no, she really meant yes. He said. Uh, and we, we believe that about ourselves. We think that we have these two little entities on our shoulders, a little angel and a little devil. And what we suspect is that we really want to do what the little red devil with its cute little tail is asking us to do. You see. Now, both the little devil and the little angel are not our will. This is the interesting thing. The very issue that we are caught up in is a false issue and comes entirely from the ego. So whenever you find yourself in any state of conflict over anything, it is neither thing that you wish to do. What you wish to do, you will find in your heart. It has nothing to do with these issues as they have been posed and raked over. Because once you hear, even slightly, even the slightest murmur of what's in your heart, then there's no question about it. You just go ahead and do it. You will do it when you hear it from your heart. So do not be afraid to look at the conflict. Conflicts continue only because we have not Watch them closely enough. Whenever you find yourself in a conflict over anything, it might be of help to state it out loud. And right then, the silliness that's involved in the whole thing will probably become apparent to you. And even if you end up doing what one of the sides that you are considering was, you will be doing it for a different motive. So even if your ego has guessed right about the actual overt action that you will eventually take, it has not guessed right about the motive for which you will take it. And so in your peace and in your calmness and in your direct looking and possibly even stating the conflict, you will then see a happy reason for doing this particular thing. There will be a little song attached to the decision little melody to the whole thing.
Well, that's a good question. Uh, the, I'm using the word ego the way A Course in Miracles uses it. And the analogy that's been most helpful to me is to liken it to an imaginary playmate. It is our imaginary identity. <laughs> and it's possible that we all had imaginary uh, playmates as children. But even if we haven't, we, we have a sense of what that is, and, we, and we've probably seen children that have them. Uh, right now, John has one called Neville Shut Up. <laughs> I would say he delights in talking about. Now, what happens is with an imaginary playmate is that you, you set the thing up. It has a certain appearance, which must be... Uh, it has to be protected. It has a certain personality that must be protected. It has a certain place that it stands. It has a certain way of speaking and so forth. It must be protected. If it's not protected, it goes away. Now, the child doesn't want it to go away, so the child protects it. And this, of course, is projected outward. The child projects outward his desire that the imaginary playmate be protected. And so the imaginary playmate seems to protect itself it almost seems to become something outside of the child that will actually advise the child not to tell so-and-so about uh, the imaginary playmate because the child knows that so-and-so will talk against the playmate. So oftentimes you will find children at a certain point refusing to talk about their playmate because they, they know that adults are going to might say something that will uh, lessen their belief in it. So the imaginary playmate actually goes about defending itself and has quite a complicated defense mechanism. And the book that illustrates this most beautifully is I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. It's just beautiful the way uh, she captured that whole self-defense that the uh, imaginary playmate takes on, or imaginary playmates, in, as in that case. So we obviously have a self-image. We have this way that we think about ourselves. We're often shocked to hear our voice on a tape recorder. It doesn't sound the way our self-image of our voice sounded. Oftentimes, children, even adults, are shocked to see themselves in a mirror. If they haven't seen themselves in a mirror for a long time, their self-image is actually painted a picture that's slightly different than what they see in the plate glass window or something of the store. They didn't think that uh, they were that bulbous. <laughs> self-image didn't have that. And this self-image, of course, has certain things that, that we cherish. Perhaps we cherish our absent-mindedness. We think this is charming. <laughs> Perhaps we, we cherish our temper. Don't we know people who love to tell stories about how they lost their temper or to have other people tell stories about the great temper fits they had and how they terrorized everybody, their temper? So these qualities are actually cherished, each one of them. Now, this would all be fine, except that if you were to ever sit down and list the qualities of your self-image, you would find that there is a conflict so that you think you are on one hand arrogant and on the other hand humble, on one hand uh, indestructible, on the other hand a hypochondriac, and so forth. There's, there's this feel, So it's actually... The self-image is a highly conflicted thought. And that's why we cannot think of ourselves as a self-image or as an ego without being in a state of conflict. In addition to that, 
it has no substance. It can't give us anything. Our self-image cannot bless us. It cannot make us happy. It cannot lead us forward. It cannot extend love to someone who's in pain because it's imaginary. It's an hallucination. So the ego is simply an imaginary identity that we all carry around with us. And it's composed of fear. And the way we let go of the ego is exactly the same way the child lets go of the imaginary playmate. And that is, the child loses interest in it. As long as the child tries to control it, or make it behave, or change its personality, or stop using that language, or any of those other things, this actually strengthens the hold that the imaginary playmate has on the child's mind. But when the child begins to experience real companionship, true companionship, or at least a truer form of companionship, then the child loses interest in the imaginary companionship. And that's exactly what happens with the ego. There is no battle to be done. We don't need to deplore it. Our ego is no better or worse than anyone else's. This is a wonderful prayer to say, as a matter of fact. My ego is no better than so-and-so's. Because we're always thinking that somehow our form of fear is superior to someone else's form. And so as we step into this place of quiet within us and make our decisions from quiet, plan our day in peace, as we step back into this place of peace, we are actually stepping into ourself becoming more familiar with what we actually are, which has no rigidity and boundaries. doesn't easily get ruffled, angry, depressed, and so forth. This simple peace that we experience and that we begin to use almost like a tool in the beginning before we realize that it's not a tool, it's an actual place, a room. As we begin to enter this more and more often, and feel this luxurious sweetness cover every one of our relationships. Cover our house. So that we love our house. Cover our car. Because we see our car as innocent. We see the tires as innocent. <laughs> and the fact that the car companies can't get together on which side to put the gas tank on. So every time you switch cars, you've got to figure this out all over again. See. It's all very innocent. As we see the innocent in it, in it, we can love it. One of the sources of confusion about metaphysics, about all the statements of truth, going back all the way to Lao Tse and Shankara, the I Ching, Buddha, and so forth, coming all the way up to, to Jesus' metaphysical statements and to the modern statements of truth and so forth. One of the things that's very confusing about all this is that there's this theme in all these philosophies and religions that what we see with our body's eyes is a dream. And yet we know that we sense the reality around us. So we have these people in our lives. And all the teachings of truth say what you see with your eyes this person's body is transitory. It's an illusion. It's a dream. It has no more reality than the figure in the dream last night. 
the people in the dream last night. No more reality. We say, yes, but I feel I feel something there. And indeed, we do. We sense a reality right where the image is. And this is quite confusing because we connect the two, the image and the reality. Very much like an alcoholic having the DTs. The alcoholic will superimpose its image of spiders or whatever the thing else it is on the things around it. So the things around it feed into the image and give the spiders a sense of reality. So it's not just spiders. It's the spider walking across the window ledge. And the window ledge has a sense of reality. And now the spider climbs up the curtain and goes behind the curtain. For a moment, uh, the man or woman having the DTs can't see the spider. The curtain has a sense of reality. It feeds into the hallucination of the spider. And in the same way, the things and the bodies and all the things around us that are changing and dying and here one day and gone the next, there is behind that the presence of God. There is behind that the presence of spiritual reality for which we have no words. It's an experience. And the words become silly. But yes, we sense the reality of this individual who stands before us. But it has nothing to do with their imaginary identity. And so what we do is in calmness, we begin looking past the lampshade to the light. Past the appearance to the child of God. And one simple way to do that is simply to say, I will speak to this person's heart. The body represents the lower part of the mind. If you relate only to a person's body and a person's behavior, you're relating to the lower part of their mind only. You speak to their heart, you begin to go past the appearance. And as you do that, you lose interest in their imaginary identity and in yours. And you begin to sense a bond between you and everyone else, an indestructible bond. And you know that the people around you will actually never leave you. And that your spiritual family will grow in numbers. And that this beautiful gay march to heaven will continue in gentleness and in song and in happiness. And all that will happen is all the visions of separateness will begin to fade. Just the visions of conflict and murder and backbiting, climbing over, grievances, that's all that will disappear. Not the light that shines within every person around you. Right, yes. This is a uh, the ego thinks that something is going on undone when we're happy. <laughs> we're leaving something, but there's a there's a little fire burning someplace. It tells us that we can smell the smoke. We better come out of this silly state of happiness and uh, start looking around for problems. This is true. 
Another thing that happens is that after you have a peaceful moment or a peaceful day, you may have the worst day in your life the next day. <laughs> now, what causes that? What causes it is the primary impasse to spiritual advancement. What is the primary impasse to spiritual advancement? It is the belief that the world should somehow look differently because of our efforts. That the world should somehow work because we have turned to God. And this is absolutely not true. And as long as you believe it, you will be defeated over and over and over again. Because you will have your moment of peace and then you will turn back to this crazy, crazy world and it will be just as crazy and you'll think you've done something wrong because you thought that you could take God and bring it into this world and impose it on the world. Impose it on your relationships. Impose it on your body. Impose it on your finances. There is no financial reward for a spiritual pain. <laughs> Better health is not a reward for a spiritual path. Better relationships is not a specific reward for a spiritual path. Now, once again, what is confusing about all this, as we've said so many times here, is that as we cease our slugging match with the world, then we do, in, in fact, begin choosing fewer illnesses, Fewer financial problems, fewer relationship problems. But this is seen in retrospect. Make this your goal and you will stop cold. Nothing is going to happen if you make anything external your goal. Changing the personality of your friend, increasing your bank account, improving your health, or anything else. Make that your goal and the whole thing stops and you are on a plateau. And what is not often realized is you can stay on a plateau for a very long time. <laughs> and so what do we do? We try to change the things that are going on around us only to the degree that they are hindering our ability to turn to God. That's the only reason to concern yourself with finances or health or relationships or the rattle in your car or anything else. If it is, it is, if it's gotten to the point where this is now keeping you from continuing your walk toward God, then take care of it simply and honestly and easily. But if that's not happening, this, disregard it if you can. That's a sufficient problem. To forget it is a sufficient answer to any problem. If you can forget it, you have solved it. That, that's a sufficient solution. Is there something going on sexually between you and your partner? If you don't think about it any longer, it's no longer a problem. Nothing has to change. That isn't the only solution, but that is a solution. It's a solution you might try, first of all. That is just dismissing it. Whatever the it is, it's just cropped up because there's no end to the it's. 
And this is the other part of the answer to your question. The recognition that the soap opera is never going that is never going to run out of scriptwriters. <laughs> they always hire new scriptwriters and so forth. There, there is nothing that can be finally solved in this world. There's things that can be temporarily solved, and that's of course what we do. That's in our daily life. We just go about solving little things that come up because it would make us and other people unhappy if we didn't do that, especially other people. It would make them unhappy if we didn't go ahead and solve the little things that need to be solved. So that's what we do when we go through the day. We solve this and we solve that. Understanding it's going to come unraveled. Understanding that it's not completely or eternally solved. Understanding that it doesn't matter that it's solved. But we simply do it. But we do it in peace. We do it with peace. We bring peace to the problem solving. But the only problems that you need choose to solve are the ones that you think would be most peaceful for you to work on and that would make others happy. If it would make someone happy for you to solve a particular problem, then that's a very good reason to go ahead and solve it, even though you make it, you know it makes no difference. And understanding that, then we no longer care that the fact that the world seems to betray us over and over again and this is the seesaw that we've been on. Money betrays us. Suddenly we get money. And it betrays us. It does not give us what we thought it was going to. And so what do people do? They betray money. They now go out and spend the money or give the money away or do something. In some way they attack the money. This is, the, this is the seesaw. Our dog betrays us. It didn't behave the way we thought it was going to. We told it to stay in the yard. <laughs> and there was this cute little poodle down at the end of the road. It was that time of year. and Off our dog went. So what do we do? The dog betrays us, so we betray the dog. We beat the dog or give the dog away or we don't feed it good food or we do something like that. No water for you today or something like that. Our child betrays us. Our child. We wiped its little butt. We burped it. We took it to the doctor. We, you know, we bought it little clothes and everything. <laughs> Bounced it on our knee. We did all these things. And it starts talking, smoking dope. <laughs> Our child betrays us. So what do we do? We betray the child. We get angry at it. We withdraw our love. We say, you can't come into my house. You have to go live on your own. I don't want to see your friends. I don't like your friends. Don't bring your friends around here. You're written out of my will. <laughs> whatever, little little things or something. Our parents betray us. Our parents, these magnificent people that we looked up to when we were kids, we're so proud of them. They surround us with love. And they got old. Suddenly they got old. And maybe our dad used to be such a brilliant man. And now he's a little senile and he forgets things and so forth. And mom has become such a problem. She's falling down and 
and uh, there's this moisture in her eyes when people are around or something. And I don't know, there's just something going on there. Do you see? They betrayed us. They, 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 they didn't turn out the way we wanted them to at, at 70 or 80 or 90. So we betray our parents. We lock them in the back room or we put them in the institute or something like that. None of these things I'm saying are bad. It doesn't mean that you have to uh, share your bed with your parents or something. All I'm saying is that this is the seesaw we've been, we've been on. The world attacks us, we attack the world. The slugging match. As we lose interest in the slugging match and gain interest in simple peace and happiness, then we begin to take that happiness and peace into any situation, even the situations that appear to, be, to betray us. So we don't suddenly turn against our house and hate our house. Turn against our city and hate our city. Turn against the power company. Now we hate all the, all the uh, power lines because of what this guy did when we went down to public service and the way he treated us, and now we drive down the street and we hate every one of the power lines. <laughs> See how silly that is on necessary? All misery is unnecessary. Okay, we got about uh, 10 minutes. Accepting ourselves and others as we are. It's very important to see what our ego is. People are single now. It's spiritual to kill an insect that's going to bite you. It's all right to do that. The ego is like a blood-sucking insect. It is. It is. It's just that it lives on conflict. That's its. That's the blood. It doesn't, it doesn't care where it has to go to get it. It will go to your most sacred place, to your church, to your, your, your inspirational books, to your very close friend. It does not care where it has to go. This must be seen. We must see that there is a part of us that wishes everyone else to lie down before us and die. That's a fact. It's not a pretty thing, but there is a little bit of murder in us. That is the ego. So we think that, that our survival, our value, is in our specialness. How we are different than other people. What we have that they don't have. And as soon as someone gets something, develop a sense of humor or they get their hair cut and they're so cute now uh, they get a little money whatever it is we feel this sense of betrayal and then we become this blood-sucking insect looking for conflict 
way around that, of course, is, first of all, to accept what we are doing. And this is another thing that's not generally understood in the study of truth, that the ego must be looked at. That's why we've talked about here about stating your fears out loud as you go through the day, the little gnawing fears that come about, just saying them out loud. Saying out loud what you don't like about your friends or this particular friend. Just saying it to yourself. The ego begins to dissolve when we look at it. Even the imaginary playmate will begin to dissolve if the child really turns and looks straight at it. It's an illusion. It's held there by mirrors. It's something seen out of the corner of the eye. Whatever's terrifying you can be diminished if you will turn and look at it. So acceptance has two levels. The first level is to accept or look honestly at your ego. Look honestly at other people's ego and see it as innocent. It's just their little imaginary identity. This is what it's up to. Tell yourself what it is. It's all right to describe other people's egos to yourself. If you can see that this is not what they are, that this is their imaginary identity, to describe their ego will help you see beyond it. So just as you might accept their body, the, 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 the faults of their body, and still, uh, any of you all see the movie Pete's Dragon? Yeah. Well, in there, uh, there's that wonderful song about uh, the description of the, of, the, uh, of the dragon. He has a face like a camel, and he has uh, ears like a cow, and he has all this uh, back like an alligator and all this stuff. And uh, so the little boy is explaining this to the woman who does not believe that the boy actually sees a dragon. But in hearing this description, she suddenly says, oh, I see. You are saying that friends can be different. Beautiful song. And we do that with their, with their parents. We do that with their house. Maybe they don't keep their house nice and neat like we do or something. We accept that about them. And we can do that same thing with their ego. Just tell ourselves what their ego is and then remind us, remind ourselves of the sweetness and the love that pours from them. The times they've supported us. The times that they've been patient. The times they've reached out. This gentle outpouring of the light within them that has come in specific ways. And one very good way to accept both ourself and another person is after we have accepted the ego and seen it, is to then literally list the instances of gentleness and peace and kindness and thoughtfulness that this person has exhibited. To take them one by one. Do at least ten the next time you get mad at someone. Sit quietly, close your eyes, and make yourself list ten things that they have done, starting with today and going back. Start always with the present and go back so you don't get caught up in nostalgia. <laughs> and just say, ah, well, they could have screamed, they didn't. Oh, they called me the other day just to say, oh, well, there's this, uh, oh, uh, she took my package. Uh, she offered to carry my package. Whatever comes to your mind. The first ones will come quite slowly, especially if you're angry. You may sit there for ten minutes, you won't be able to think of a single one if you're angry. 
Your ego doesn't want you to think of the light of God within this person because it knows that it, your ego, will be weakened every time you see a little light in another person. But you take the time to do it. And you list the things. And, and that allows you to accept the light of God within them. Okay, we have got just about two more minutes. And as you heard, we've got a treat because we have another composition, a brand new composition, uh, at the end of this service by John Huntress. So we've got, let me just, John, we've got just about two minutes, so let me just see if there's one more question and then we'll do that. Yeah. If we are not our ego, who are we? If we're not our ego, who are we? <laughs> Let's end on that one. That's a very scary, the answer to that is very scary to the ego. Because the word sounds so strange. God is all. There is nothing else but God. And everything that exists is an extension of God. So you are of God and in God. And in some sense that our ego cannot begin to comprehend. We are literally God. But the ego hears that and thinks, ah, the ego is God. This little puny dot in here in Santa Fe is God. That's not what's God. God is a brilliance. God is a light. God is an unending and absolute joy. God is an all-encompassing peace. God is a creator that never stops creating. God unfolds and unfolds and unfolds, but always upon itself. The heart of God reaches out and out and out, but always to itself. And so you are the light of light. Happiness made you happy. We said the prayer a Sunday or two ago, to this instant, would I bring the peace of God? Begin today to say a new prayer. I have the peace of God. I am the peace of God to this situation. So that's what we are. An extension of God's love. A creation of beauty. The strength of strength. The joy of happiness. A total willingness and a freedom beyond anything that we can conceive of. And to know that and enter that and accept that and be that requires only the willingness to begin today to be gentle, to forgive other people, to walk in peace, to be happy now. <laughs>